Do you know what necropants are? Necropants. Necropants are the skin of the legs and feet of dead people. In 17th century Iceland, there was a bit of a craze for slicing up the skin of people and drying it, then dressing up in it. Part of a whole obsession with rituals around the bodies of the dead at the time. They'd take ribs from one person or animal, skin from another and so on, until they had created a hodgepodge, nightmarish creature that was then preserved. They still occasionally turn up in old hay barns and attics in remote outposts. Necropants are exactly the sort of thing you find in an almanac. What is an almanac? Well, an almanac is a mixum gatherum of science and superstition. Oddities, old wives' tales, folk wisdom and plain old junk. In other words, an almanac is a glorious indulgence of the weird and the wonderful from all over a particular region. Which is exactly what this series is. Stories from everywhere. So I'm on Rattlin Island, six miles the wind roughly is off. Literally the blowing me off the side of an Atlantic peninsula. I'm in Ballycastle, County Antrim, at eight o'clock in the morning. I want to take us on a road trip, you and me, where we'll seek out unexpected insights, evocative angles, and unusual oddities from the nature and heritage of this island of ours. And with so many stories to get through, we better dive right in. It's in the family. It's in the family of the most connected with the folklore, connected with cats with two tails. You're saying we turn to Christianity because of a weather event. Sunny days really are the best times to see them. Okay, you and I are about to get rich. The Arabs of North Africa are that was stuck in the middle of what they called the Sea of We'll start off simple enough, in the centre of Dublin, just off O'Connell Street. So, damp day, I'm at Cattleborough Street in Dublin and I'm about to enter the, what's this called? The Dublin Institute of Technology, uh, which is this most gorgeous building from like the industrial era, 1930s, 1940s, of uh, granite and Connemara marble inside. This is the DIT School of Culinary Arts and Food Technology what used to be known as the College of Catering. And I want to meet a man who knows more about the history of what we ate long ago than probably anyone in Ireland. His name is Martin Makanumara. Martin Makanumara used to be a student here. He's now a professional chef, and he lectures here in the college. Gerard, the main man, runs this place. You know, if he was without the food, we'd, we'd be nowhere, you know what I mean? As Martin sweeps us up the central staircase and gives us a quick tour of the place... I think about the one question I want to ask him. What is Irish food? I know that the things that we've been eating since the Great Famine of the 1840s are what we now consider traditional. Potatoes and soda bread, or, or boiled bacon and cabbage. But what about people like the High Kings of Tara and their tribes? Or the 5th century monks in their monasteries? What did they eat? I'm imagining nuts and berries, or else great feasting in the style of Game of Thrones, where battle-weary heroes gorge themselves on meat, wooden tables heaving under the heft of roasted pigs or cattle. But no. 
Martin tells me our ancestors ate something called bonvia, or white meats. That's like chicken and fish, is it? No, no. White meats are basically various forms of milk, which is basically our butter, our curds, like we have today, and sort of ricotta and that sort of things. But also we had hard cheeses as well. Hang on a second. Ricotta? In early Ireland? How can something we associate with sun-kissed Sicily have existed in pre-famine Ireland? I want to know more. But to get the full story, I'm going to have to curb my hunger for cheese for the moment and go back even further. Back to the first settlers who came to Ireland 10,000 years ago. They would have arrived into an island that was thickly forested. So they would have made their way gradually around sort of the coast, so they would have fed off foraging, hunting, and naturally fish, both shellfish and trapping fish and eels and all that sort of stuff, and, and salmon and the rest of it. But around 6,000 years ago, a second wave of settlers arrived with livestock, like cows, sheep and goats, and the technology to clear the forests and plough the land. These were Ireland's first farmers. We can see that from the excavation that has been done down in North Mayo, in the Cage of Fields, that we have the earliest evidence of organised farming in Western Europe. The Cade of Fields is an archaeological site on the North Mayo coast. And it's where a local school teacher, Patrick Caulfield, and later his son, Seamus, discovered what looked like human-made walls underneath a blanket bog. These weren't typical house walls. They were the type of walls used to create small fields, which would contain cattle. And this led the archaeologists to conclude that these were dairy farmers. If it was just for meat, you wouldn't need small walls. You could just let them out because you only need to bring them back when you're killing them. Whereas the idea of dairy farming is that you need to milk them twice a day, so it all needs to be organised and structured. And this is where cheeses come into our story. You see, along with grains and occasionally meat, milk remained at the heart of the early Irish diet for thousands of years. The milk was drunk and also churned into butter, and then the byproducts were fermented and made into things like ricotta. There were even varieties of hard cheeses that can be likened to cheddar or parmesan. What were called milk products that needed long chewing and those that needed slow chewing. There were all of these things that were specialities in themselves. All nutritious, all wonderful, nothing went to waste. In fact, a hard cheese called Tannig played a crucial role in Ireland's epic saga, the Táinbó Cúilne. The main protagonist, Queen Maeve, was killed by a piece of it flung from a sling by her nephew, Fudabud. And so we arrive at the 5th century AD and a significant turning point in Irish history, the arrival of Christianity. With Christianity came monks, and they established monasteries all over the country. They also brought new farming techniques and food supplies. Each monastery would have had their outlying farms, they would have had their mills, they would have had their fish traps or fish ponds, they would have had their aviaries, honey, everything like that, you know. 
Then, around the 8th century, the tide brought in a new breed of influencer, the Vikings. They taught us how to trade in things like fish and other foods. And they also decentralized power and set up important centers of commerce around the coast. So you have Waterford, you have Limerick, you have Cork, you have Dublin, you have, you have Wexford, all of that sort of stuff bit by bit. And actually then the Normans come then later, and with the Normans come some different technologies such as the built-up oven, they bring in the rabbit, they bring in a certain type of deer, they bring in some other foods that, that weren't here before. And it's here that things get interesting. The Normans brought the most sophisticated culinary and baking skills from France and knowledge of new food products we had never known about. The Irish at the time were renowned for their hospitality and the Normans embraced this tradition with gusto, sharing their abundance of new foods with their guests. So feasting was huge. Alcohol was huge, the whole thing, you know, this idea that you know, it was na scale, or that you know, they wouldn't be happy until they actually had a, a drink inside you and a bit of food. And even nowadays, you know, when someone comes to your house, the first thing you will have a cup of tea, you have a beer, you'll have something, you have a drop of whiskey. You're not actually happy until you fed them and drank, you fed them water, you know, whether it's a hang sandwich or whatever. This ingrained hospitality that we have, you know, comes from those times. So this whole idea of, you know, guan, 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 have a cup of tea in Father Ted. When you mention, I see it in Arabic culture too, but you're saying that's actually going right back. That's something truly ancient. Oh yeah, hospitality is so important, has always been so important. Like, but actually it's in our DNA. We feel it's part of our duty. And one of the ideas behind this is that food was power. If somebody upsets you, or annoyed you, or wronged you, you sat outside their house and you went on hunger strike. You could be the poorest man in Ireland and you could sit outside a king's house and you would embarrass that king by starving outside. So you had that power. It was the ultimate thing, lack of hospitality. Ireland and India are the only two places with evidence of hunger strikes from over 2,000 years ago. Both then used this technique skillfully against the British in the early 20th century. The Irish revolutionaries Thomas Ashe and Terence McSweeney inspired Mahatma Gandhi to further promote his own political hunger strikes to gain freedom for his people. So, moving on from the Normans and their robust hospitality, we reach the 18th century, where things get a lot more dramatic. The 1700s was a time of big ideas and major disruption that still affect us today. It saw population booms and revolutions and human trafficking for slavery on an almost industrial scale. And with so many people to feed, farms became bigger and more intensive. And people became hungry for new exotic things like silk, spices and food from all over the world. And Ireland had one thing in particular that everyone wanted. Butter. 
So instead of the average person eating lots of butter, the average person then would have been making lots of butter and then actually sending it off then down to Cork to the butter market to be shipped all over the world. It became sort of a, a cash crop. And the same is true then later about pigs, like, you know, the pig was known as the gentleman who paid the rent and all that sort of stuff. So at one stage they reckoned that there was more pigs in Ireland than there was humans. And uh, they became a cash product then. And there was the story around 150 years ago where you would have the Irish man selling his pig in the market, getting the money and then buying inferior, cheap American bacon and bringing it home, having sent this beautiful Irish pig to the market, you know what I mean? So, you know, that's market economies. And now, as I say, we're up to supermarkets and commercialization and spice bags and the rest of it. So, you know, there's a, a whistle stop tour, as they say, of food in Ireland. But this tour is far from over. The arrival of the potato in the late 1700s and then the dreaded blight of the 1840s ushered in major changes in farming and land use. It changed everything about our world, including what we ate, and the ramifications are still with us today. We'll get a chance to explore a lot of this in future programmes. But just to whet your appetite, here's a sample from the menu of what lies ahead in upcoming episodes of the Almanac of Ireland. Have four legs, very lizard-like in appearance, very fan-like tail if it's a male. He came across an old house overgrown with trees. Inside the house he found the book called Herbert Cures. When you realise you came on so a tree. It's definitely not a story you tell is like something out of a Hollywood movie. I'm in no rush to stick my feet up. They have tiny brains, don't they? They're not the cleverest. Well, perhaps not. They don't need to do much. They've been around a lot longer than we have. Ha, ha, ha.